next few months, we're going to be engaged in a study I am calling Selections from Samuel. As we begin this Old Testament narrative of history, I want to do a brief overview of what was happening uh, and why the books of Samuel are important. We're going to start with 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20 in just a few minutes. So let's back up a bit. After the people of Israel were rescued from slavery in Egypt, they were miraculously led by God across the Red Sea. Not long afterwards, at Mount Sinai, Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law, helping to broker a covenant between the people and Yahweh. They were supposed to be faithful to God and obey what he commanded. Yet we see that they failed repeatedly in this. Adam and Eve are the first ones to reject God's authority, and the pattern continues with us today, so we understand the difficult reality that they lived in. As we studied the book of Ruth last year, we talked about how the time of judges ruling Israel was one of moral chaos and great darkness. There were a few faithful people, but overall the nation struggled because they didn't have wise leadership. They were unable to follow God on their own strength. There was great corruption. God was silent. The book of Samuel provides the context for what happens next as God supplies an answer to their need for leadership. The authorship is unknown, but Jewish tradition says that Samuel himself wrote most of 1 Samuel, and after his death, the prophets Nathan and Gad wrote the rest. The books we know as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings were written in Hebrew as a single work on two scrolls. When it was translated into Greek in the 2nd century BC, it was divided into the four books we have now. This is because writing in Greek took twice the space of writing, so four scrolls were required. The church has maintained this division. The books of Samuel showed the huge change that happened in Israel when they transitioned from being a loose connection of tribes to becoming a centralized nation under a strong monarch. As you can imagine, this shift brought huge societal and economic, political, and religious shifts. Samuel then is seen as the bridge between the time of judges and the time of institutional power in the book of Kings. Both systems have challenges inherent in them, but our focus will be more on how the monarchy came about and what that meant for the people of God. Eugene Peterson, the author and pastor, says that our Hebrew ancestors in the faith were magnificent storytellers. Their stories show us that to be human means to deal with God. In this book, we'll see a breadth of experiences, and every detail shows a people who are constantly trying to figure out what it means to live either accepting or rejecting the God who made them, and then the blessings and the consequences that come with those choices. God is the subject of these narratives, and we are invited to see the story of our lives and how they fit into God's overreaching chronicle of history. We're invited to participate in the plot finding our hearts and minds engaged by the Holy Spirit, whose handwriting we see constantly behind the drama. Peterson also reminds us of something vital in his commentary. The Israelites, for all of their back-and-forth obedience, believed that God was personally active and that he was alive to them, always, everywhere, working his will. So any history we read in the Bible is not meant for us just to know facts 
to be entertained or to argue about what really happened. It's for us to understand how God is unveiling his plan of salvation for the world. The account given to us is because God taught the people then important lessons that weave all the way through Jesus to us to the end of time. The people we read about are witnesses to us of his character and intervention and their circumstances. Through them, he has lessons for us to learn today. Here are some themes that we will be encountering. No matter who is on the throne, God is the king. We put our hope in our eternal ruler rather than any human government. The covenant that he makes with people matters. And that covenant is key to understanding who we are. Because we also are people of promise. There is the notion of the ideal versus the real king. The people need a good ruler, yet he is always flawed. So there is nuance here of who is the hero and who is the villain. We will also see the use and abuse of power, and we will talk about the nature of repentance. First and second Samuel were thought to be written after the nation divides that happens after the reign of Solomon. But before the Assyrian captivity, sometime between 931 and 722 B.C., For context, this is a midpoint between the call of Abraham roughly a thousand years before and the birth of Jesus roughly a thousand years later. There are four main characters, Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David. The whole story is framed by prayer, beginning with Hannah and ending with David. So let's dive into 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramatham, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. Uh... 
sorry. As she continued praying before the Lord, I'm all in it, people. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Amen. Beautiful. So let's start with what we see about this family. Elkanah has an impressive background with four generations of respected lineage behind him. He is from Ephraim, which was a beautiful and fertile place. He is a faithful man. He cares for his family. He lives out his heritage. He is concerned to fulfill his vows to God. Every year they go to Shiloh to offer sacrifices to the Lord along with everyone else because that is where the ark and the tabernacle were at that time. It was the most important place of worship for Israelites in the 200-year period when the conquest ended under Joshua to the time of King David. As we are introduced to Hannah, we see she is full of sorrow. She cannot have a child, which would have been important to carry on the family line we see so obviously displayed in these verses. Being barren would have been how she was defined. Her perceived value would have been lowered in her community as well as in her own mind because of it. Barrenness is a common theme in the Bible. Hannah joins prominent sisters such as Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Elizabeth. It's not only an emotional and family problem, but it is seen as a spiritual issue. Here we read that the Lord has closed her womb. We don't have time to delve into that, but I encourage you to wrestle with that and to think about what that means. Hannah has all the symptoms of depression. She weeps. She cannot eat, nor does she care about her husband His attention. She cares about him, but his attention. Verse 10 says she wept bitterly, and I want to talk about that for a second. Hannah is in grief. This grief has stolen her joy. Changed the nature of her close relationship with Elkanah and has taken away her life. Her sorrow is compounded by the other wife who is provoking and trying to harm Hannah on purpose. No wonder she is bitter. The evil that she's experiencing in her own home is making everything so much worse. Even today, when women do not have the same cultural pressure or weird sister-wife relationship, they feel the acute pain of not having a child. I remember having moments of bitterness when friends of mine were easily getting pregnant and we were struggling. In the middle of it, her husband goes against the norm for men of his time in his affirmation of her. 
He is basically saying to her that he values her just for who she is. She is not worthless because of what she cannot give him. She is still precious to him, and we feel his pain as well. Hannah made two choices here that I want to talk about that changed everything about her emotional well-being as well as her actual circumstances. Seriously, she could have died an old lady, bitter and childless, still replaying the awful taunts in her head while Peninnah's grandchildren were running all around her. But she decided to exercise her faith in the Lord. Her first choice was to seek God in his sanctuary. Now it's her turn to go against the cultural grain of her time. Women didn't just walk into a place of worship empty-handed with nothing to sacrifice in order to present themselves before the Lord. She went to where she knew God dwelled. She couldn't take it anymore. She needed to bear her soul to him. Even when we come to pray in this room, On our own during the week, there is something sacred for us. It is quiet. The walls absorb all of the prayers of all of the years here. There's a heart heart posture that's unique when we come into the sanctuary. We can talk to Jesus any place, but when we come here to the altar, it's serious business for us. She pours out everything to God, her anxiety, her anger, her distress, her misery. In coming before the Lord, she's doing something we all understand, that we are powerless people, and we confess our inability to change our lives the way that we want them to be. There was nothing Hannah could do about her plight, but she could ask the Lord to help her. He is the giver of life. He is merciful to the downcast. All renewal begins with prayer of faithful people seeking the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a good thought here. We are privileged to know that God knows our needs before we ask him. This is what gives Christian prayer its boundless confidence and its joyous certainty. It matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. What matters is the faith which lays hold on God and touches the heart of the Father, who knew us long before we came to him. Genuine prayer is never good works and exercise or a pious attitude, but it is always the prayer of a child to a father. Amen. Before I go on to the next point, I do want to highlight how Eli thinks Hannah is drunk. This tells us either more about the priest than we need to know, or it means that he is not used to seeing someone come and pray in the temple of the Lord in this season of Israel. Either way, it is sad. And this is a lesson for us as pastors and leaders and coaches and counselors and teachers. Here she is praying, and the one who is supposed to care for her makes the wrong assumption about what he's seeing Instead of approaching her with an open mind, he condemns her before he even tries to understand what is happening. This is a fail on his part, in my humble opinion. Had he and his sons actually been sowing the hearts of the people under their care, maybe there would have been more seeking of the Lord. And I love it when he reprimands her because she is not intimidated by him. 
Don't be afraid to seek God as you need to. Later rabbis will uphold Hannah as a model of authentic prayer. But for now, she sadly has to defend herself in the house of the Lord. Okay, rant over. Secondly, Hannah chooses to change her priorities. There's lots to say here, but there's an idea that has just been stirring in my mind all week about this. Hannah asked the Lord for a son. Then she offered to give that child back to him. This is something for us to hold closely for a few minutes. How often do we plead for God to give us something? And then how often do we give it back to him? Cynicism may say, why ask for it if you're not going to keep it? But faith says something more powerful. It says, all that we are given is a gift. Hannah offered her son back to show her gratefulness and her understanding of the Lord and the covenant that she had with him. You see, bitterness puts our focus on our needs. And it puts blame on those we think are keeping us from getting what we want. We can get so focused on what we think would fulfill us or give us joy that we forget the bigger picture that God is at work. In her process, she gets to the place where she no longer wanted a child for herself. She begins to have a greater vision of what that child could mean for the Lord and for his purposes. I'm blown away by Hannah's prayer because she is asking for what she wants while simultaneously saying she will give it back to God. This is not an afterthought or an obligation. In her brokenness, she finds solace in the truth of this relationship she has with the Lord where she could commit to God what he might graciously give to her. I'm unsure why I'm so taken by this act. I think it's because Hannah's love for God was greater than her love for what she wanted, which was a child. Elkanah said, am I not enough for you? And Hannah clearly said no. But for Yahweh, Yahweh was more than enough for her. She learned that she did love God more. So beautiful and such an important question for all of us to ask in our lives. Do you love God more than what you have habitually been asking of him? Would you be willing to give back to him what it is that you most want? Your health, a place to live, a spouse, a job, a child. When Eli finds out she is sincere and has come out of desperation to hear from the Lord, he blesses her. He tells her to go in peace. It is akin to saying, amen, may it be so for you. Her prayer in the sanctuary of God changes everything about her. She is able to eat. Her face is no longer downcast. She has hope and confidence in the Lord. But nothing has changed. Nothing has changed for her except her outlook. She has met with the living God and he who has guided her prayer has assured her of his presence. As you read the rest of the chapter, you will see that Hannah is faithful to her vow. In one of the most beautiful pictures of all of scripture, she brings her child back to the temple of the Lord and gives him to Eli, the priest. She gives back to the Lord A child that must have meant everything to her. A child of promise who will help bring life back to Israel.
as we are in the sanctuary of the Lord today, I encourage you to consider what bitterness you are carrying with you. What is it that you want from God? What burden do you need to lay on the altar this morning so that you might find peace? In your relationship with the Lord, are you feeling led back to offer something that he is going to give you? The altar is always open. This is a place of prayer and healing. I invite you to come as we sing if you need to pray. There are people who will come and pray with you. This is a place of seeking God's heart. If you need to come before him, don't leave this place. Let him have your burden. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.